According to the American Cancer Society, colorectal cancer is expected to cause over 50,000 deaths in the United States this year. Several screening tests have been developed to help doctors find colorectal cancer early when it's most treatable. But what are the new screening guidelines, and how will they help us reduce the burden of disease and the death toll nationwide? You're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Joining me today is Dr. John Kissel, gastroenterologist and assistant professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. Dr. Kissel, Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great to have you with us. So to get us started, what are your views on the traditional approaches to colon cancer screening? Do you think they measure up or fall short? Well, I think the the traditional measures that we use to screen people for colon cancer have very strong effectiveness data behind them. There are large randomized controlled trials that support the use of fecal occult blood testing and support the use of flexible sigmoidoscopy. And those trials have shown a modest reduction in cancer mortality, but probably that reduction falls far short of what we actually need to see. There is not any randomized controlled trial data yet in support of colonoscopy, but there are large observational studies that show that colonoscopy does reduce the incidence and the death attributable to colorectal cancer. But again, that reduction probably still falls short of what is ideal. And I think what's also more concerning is that even though we have these testing options available, patients aren't using them consistently. When we look at other screening tests that we have, for instance, mammography or pap smears for cervical cancer, the participation rates are pretty good, 75 or 80% or more. For colorectal cancer, the participation in programmatic screening is significantly lower. Patients will report in surveys that um, maybe two out of every three individuals has been exposed to a colorectal cancer screening test. But when we actually dig into their medical records and do detailed chart review, it may be as few as only one in, in two eligible patients is participating in screening. So I think we need to do better. And I think that the new United States Preventative Services Task Force guidelines are taking steps to enable physicians and patients to have more options and different ways to participate in screening that they didn't have before. And I'd love to talk to you about those guidelines. We'll focus on those exclusively in a minute. I just want to return back to one comment you said when you talked about no randomized control trials being made available, specifically looking at colonoscopy. That blows me away just to hear that. As a gastroenterologist, are you surprised by that? I mean, colonoscopy is so ubiquitous in the practice landscape as a screening for colorectal cancer. How are there no trials yet for this screening approach? There are trials in progress, but the full results of those are not available. And so we have to keep in mind when a screening test is brought into clinical practice or in the clinical trial setting that it can take decades to show the benefit in reduction of mortality attributable to the type of cancer that that test is screening for. And so even though there are trials in progress, we don't have randomized controlled trial evidence yet. We do have very large observational data sets. There are three studies in particular that have gained a lot of attention in the past 10 years that have shown that while colorectal cancer death is prevented very well in the left colon, that colonoscopy is probably significantly less effective at prevention of cancer in the right side of the colon. That may be because uh, we didn't recognize some of the critical right-sided uh, precursor lesions in the past. 
But those studies have kind of shaken the faith of a lot of people in the strength of screening colonoscopy as a primary screening tool. As far as getting a sense of lesions, is it an access issue? Yeah, well, flexible sigmoidoscopy doesn't screen the left at all. I think even with a full colonoscopy where we can see the right side of the colon, we've really only recognized probably in the last eight to 10 years the importance of the sessile serrated polyp precursor. And prior to that, we just literally didn't see them. These are very subtle, very flat lesions that can be easily obscured by prep conditions and really require a very careful training to recognize and be able to identify the margins of these lesions to treat them. And Dr. Kessler, you talked about with us some of these traditional screening methods, the data and the lack thereof. What about new screening tests being developed or that have been developed I'm curious what those are, if you could run us through those, and which patients you think these tests are appropriate for selectively and respectively. So the new screening tests that are now endorsed by the guidelines would include the stool DNA test and the CT colonography test. The stool DNA test is a non-invasive test performed by patients in their own home. It has to be prescribed by a licensed healthcare provider, and it analyzes stool for altered DNA that would be shed by cancerous or precancerous cells, as well as blood. And that test is endorsed by the American Cancer Society and the American College of Gastroenterology, as well as approved by FDA and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to screen patients who are at average risk every three years. The other test that's available now on the guidelines is CT colonography. Unlike the stool DNA test, that CT colonography test does require a full bowel prep, and patients have to come in to get a scan. They have their colon inflated with air from below, and then a radiologist reviews those images to look for polyps or cancerous growths. And if they have a negative scan, they would get retested as often as every five years. And that gives us a great backdrop then to move in on uh, the guidelines that you had talked about. Knowing now uh, the traditional tests, some of the new tests coming out, we'll focus on those. But getting back to the guidelines, can you talk about why these screening guidelines are important from a public health perspective? The screening guidelines from USPSTF are important primarily because although you know many of these tests have previously been endorsed by different specialty societies, this level, the task force level, is really the highest level of endorsement in the land, and it is directly tied to insurance reimbursement. So a test that's endorsed at this level should be covered or will eventually be covered for screening for the general population. A pretty much one-to-one ratio uh, you found just over the course of your practice? These guidelines are incorporated into key quality metrics that payors are graded upon as far as how well they're taking care of their patients. And if patients are getting screening done with a test that's not on these guidelines, the providers are dinged as having not screened their patient. And there's sort of a triangle between the quality guidelines, the insurance reimbursement, and patient access to these tests. Well, for those who are just tuning in, this is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. My guest is Dr. John Kissel, gastroenterologist and assistant professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. So, Dr. Kissel, getting back to the updated guidelines for colon cancer screening we've just been talking about, What would you say are the major takeaways or key areas that you think clinicians should be aware of, especially those who aren't practicing gastroenterologists, maybe primary care clinicians, for instance? We've often, as gastroenterologists, been very aggressive with our endorsement of colonoscopy as the test to get. But I think it's important to remember 
that when you compare each of the testing options in terms of their benefits, in terms of life years gained and colorectal cancer deaths averted, they are more similar than they are different. The guidelines also look at the relative harms of screening, which would include the lifetime number of invasive tests or colonoscopies that a patient would have as those are associated with downstream complications, either cardiovascular events or GI bleeding complications related to the procedures. And so the guidelines were very careful to stack up those harms and benefits when looking at broadening their acceptance of some of these newer tests that are available. When you look at some of the newer non-invasive tests that are available, these tests compare very favorably with the traditional screening methods. I think it's also really being emphasized now in these guidelines that even a very accurate test, if it's not being used, has an accuracy of zero. And so we're really trying to give patients options to improve their participation in programmatic screening as one of the key goals. You know, the American Cancer Society really would like us to be able to screen 80% of patients by the year 2018, and that ambitious goal, I think, will be accelerated by the availability of new options for patients. We do know that giving patients options will improve their participation in screening. That's been shown in a randomized controlled trial. And we also know that now that these non-invasive options are available, that participation appears to be improving. So there is data showing now collected regarding stool DNA testing that patients who are previously non-compliant are participating at a greater rate, and we hope to see more data and more elaboration on that concept in the near future. So it sounds like that data behind options, which is actually a surprise to hear from a consumer standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. From a patient care standpoint, it's, it's interesting to hear that this data about options has led to much greater compliance, if I interpreted you correctly. Whereas there any other data behind these guideline updates that you consider to be really persuasive or compelling for supporting some testing options over others? Well, I I think the guidelines are emphasizing really that they're kind of taking a strong endorsement of one test out over others, whereas previous guidelines have been probably more favorable towards colonoscopy than these newer guidelines. I think really the emphasis is on broader participation because even tests with lower accuracy, like fecal occult blood testing, will be beneficial if they're used. But some of these older tests, again, non-compliance is a really big issue. Regular participation with the fecal occult blood test that has to be used every year is probably pretty spotty. That rate of regular compliance can be 30% or less in some of the larger clinical trials. So again, if you kind of look at the big 30,000-foot view in terms of benefits for life years gained and colorectal cancer deaths prevented, the tests appear more similar than they are different. That's great. And it exposes a bias of my own. When you mentioned more options coming on to the scene and some more data to support those options, my immediate reaction is to think, well, some of the data will support some over others. There'll be a new paradigm. Some will sort of shift into the limelight. Some will get pushed back. But really, you're saying from a broader standpoint, look at this collective group of options, using these together collectively or providing these options will actually increase compliance and lead to better outcomes. Yeah, that's what we really hope, and that's what some of the early data shows. I think also when we look at other measures, surrogates of effectiveness, when we're looking at cost-effectiveness models and the such, we really often put a population or a hypothetical population of patients in kind of an all-or-none bucket. You know, all must get this test or all must get that test, and then we compare what the results are. 
we really have to look at real-world clinical observations to figure out how people actually behave and whether or not having new options available for them will increase programmatic participation. Anecdotally, we think it does. Extrapolating from comparisons of some of the older tests to each other, we think it does. And survey data for patients, especially those that are participating in screening with stool DNA, indicates that there are a lot of people not just putting off screening for a few years in anticipation of a new option, but patients putting off screening for decades who've been previously non-compliant with their screening. But with the addition of stool DNA, easily the most non-invasive option out there, a clear reason to push it forward. Any other pros or cons that you see with an option such as that that's coming onto the scene? Yeah, I think one of the one of the things we're seeing as we look at prescriber practices within our own population here, where we've kind of done a very careful post-market analysis and looking at some of the real-world outcomes that we see with this test, I think it's important to remember that this test is not endorsed for patients with symptoms that would require a diagnostic evaluation. We shouldn't be using it in anemic patients or patients at high risk of complications with a colonoscopy in order to try to avoid that colonoscopy. If the patient really needs one, uh, stool DNA is not a surrogate for a diagnostic colonoscopy. And patients have to remember that if, and providers, that if that stool DNA test is positive, uh, patients need a follow-up diagnostic colonoscopy in order to try to figure out why. Dr. Kissel, before we wrap up, we only have about a minute left. Any other comments that you'd like to reiterate or share or add to this discussion? I know we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, I think it's, as you alluded to earlier, that colorectal cancer is really one of the most preventable cancers that we encounter. And these 50,000 individuals a year that will die of this disease, fortunately, are largely dying needlessly. This is the most fatal preventable cancer. And I think I'm really encouraged to see how screening participation changes with the issuance of the new guidelines. And we're looking forward to generating a lot of new data on the effectiveness of these new methods. Well, with that sentiment, I very much want to thank my guest, Dr. John Kissel, for joining me today to talk about colon cancer screening updates. Dr. Kissel, it was great having you on the program. Thank you so much. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. To access this episode and others, visit ReachMD.com and become part of the knowledge. Thanks for listening.